Mayor Kim Driscoll has served for 16 years as the chief executive for the city of Salem, Massachusetts, and she is now running for statewide office, throwing her hat into the ring to become lieutenant governor. She stopped by the studio on her way to a forum in North Adams, and we covered a lot of ground, including inflation and wages, the reinvigorated union movement, police accountability following the shooting death of Miguel Estrella by Pittsfield Police, funding for gateway communities and for hill towns with an immense amount of state-owned property, as well as some very innovative ideas to better leverage tourism dollars for communities like ours, as has been done in Salem. Here's my conversation with Mayor Driscoll without interruption. So we have Mayor Driscoll here, and she is running for lieutenant governor. So uh, welcome uh, to Pittsfield, Mayor. Thank you. It's great to be here. Otherwise known as God's country. It's so beautiful. It really is. And you picked a really nice day to come out here as well. Uh, Gorgeous. So um, after 16 years as the mayor of Salem, another gateway community, Pittsfield is one of those. So there's some similarities there, but you're deciding you've decided to run for lieutenant governor. So tell me about why you're choosing to, to run for lieutenant governor. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Um, I really do feel like being mayor, particularly mayor of a gateway city, you're really facing a microcosm of the same challenges our Commonwealth is facing, whether it's trying to keep our community affordable from a housing perspective, trying to make sure we're being wise about how we spend transportation and infrastructure dollars. You know, no one's going to outrun climate change. There's more work to do there. As mayor, I chaired the Salem School Committee. I know deeply how much our, our, our students and our staff have been impacted by COVID. There's a lot of work to do there. I just feel like I have an opportunity to give back. I love being mayor. I think uh, working in city government, it's frankly the most important branch of government you rely on, educating your kids, keeping your neighborhood safe, investing in those places you make memories. But I really feel like um, we need a strong state partner. No city, even one that has a tremendous amount of assets, can really make it on their own. To To have a thriving commonwealth, we need cities working and working well. And for cities to work well, we need a strong state partner. And I'm hoping um, my experience as mayor uh, can put me in a position to partner with our next governor and really deliver for our cities and towns. And that's uh, why I'm excited about this opportunity. Tell me about that operation standpoint, because being a mayor uh, is so different than being a legislator. And you know, uh, there have been some legislators who have gone on and done good things from an operating standpoint, administrative standpoint, but uh, there's nothing like being the person who actually runs a city, creates a budget, has to manage people. Um, you know, tell me about that perspective coming in to a position, which would be the executive uh, portion of the state government. I think you know this because you've had some experience in local government. There's no hiding like in a job like mine. There's direct accountability. When you're mayor, you're responsible. Sort of the buck stops with you. I really think that's an important both experience and skill set um, to bring to the state house. And frankly, there's a sense of urgency. Um, I think of local government as the get stuff done wing. <laughs> you know, we don't have a frankly a Republican or a Democratic pothole. You have to work with everyone in your community, right, to to accomplish a vision. Um, that's the public sector, that's the private sector, that's nonprofits, that's people who voted for you and those who didn't. I feel really fortunate to have been reelected. I'm in my fifth term in Salem. um, And I think people have supported me because they know that even when they disagree with the decisions that may have come out of City Hall, they know that and they trust that we're putting the public uh, goodwill first, right? We're really interested in making sure we're making decisions that are going to benefit everybody and doing so in a manner that, that you know, you're going to be accountable for. 
Um, I think that's the difference. I have experience putting budgets together, uh, negotiating contracts. There's 1,200 employees that work in the city. Um, it's, f- from my perspective, the most meaningful work that you do. Um, and you can have a real influence in the place that you live and the place that you love. And that sensibility is what I hope to bring to the state house as your next lieutenant governor. And so you know how important, for instance, chapter $70 are, which is the state funding for education. And the formula changed not too many years ago. And I think that was a huge benefit for gateway cities generally. I'm sure Salem did pretty well, but Pittsfield certainly made up for lost time where chapter 70 funding had been really anemic uh, as far as the increases go over over time. And it really kind of added, created some balance that wasn't there uh, before. So, you know, you recognize how important that is, I, I assume. But um, also in Western Massachusetts, uh, there's this thing called payment in lieu of taxes. Um, so there's chapter 70, which has been helpful to the, the city of Pittsfield for sure. But some of these smaller communities have a lot of state-owned property where they can't collect property taxes on them. Um, And that has been kind of an issue, I think, going back all the way to the Romney administration, (laughs) uh, where some of those cuts were made. Um, You know, tell me about that. I know you have a forum in North Adams tonight that may be an issue that uh, comes up uh, as well. Yeah, I would expect it will. You know, as someone who has worked in cities, you know, for a good number of years before working as mayor in Salem, I worked for the city of Chelsea as they came out of receivership first as their chief legal counsel and then as their deputy city manager. Really taught me the value of good government and who pays the price when there are these failures in leadership. And also help showcase like what happens when you have institutionalized bad practices and finances, you know, really don't come together. Um, Pittsfield uh, and the challenges you have in many communities in Western Mass with pilots or payment in lieu of taxes for state-owned land. Uh, frankly, we have a similar challenge to that in Salem. Chelsea had similar challenges to that with uh, with state courthouses. In our case, we have a university where the county hubs. So we have all those county buildings mm-hmm. there and and uh, and state buildings in terms of courthouses. Uh, an MBTA train station. Uh, we are the hub, which is terrific, but it also means that some of our key areas that you could collect tax revenues are aren't producing revenues. They're producing mm. other things, right? There are people, it's you sure. know, contributing to the livelihood. In the case of Western Mass, like the pilot formula really um really is is a struggle because you're not only um receiving less taxes because the pilot formula doesn't equate to what you'd collect uh, on a on a you know ad valorem value basis. But you also don't get that vitality because most of it's open space and it's things that we need. It's a huge opportunity. That's terrific. We have to have forestry lands and we need these agricultural spaces and other state-owned assets that are here. Um, But we need to make sure we're compensating the communities that host them adequately because they're doing a huge service for the entire Commonwealth. When you think about decarbonization and the need to have trees and forestry and these beautiful open spaces, how fortunate are we to have these green spaces that we all took full advantage of during COVID, getting out and enjoying them, but it shouldn't be at the expense of the communities that host them. So Mm. I really hope that the formula is something that we we can work hard to address. But I think it's even greater than a formula when you think about Western Mass. Many of our rural spaces and how we how we fund schools, it's not benefiting them. You have less students. People are having less children. Uh, it doesn't mean the heat costs are lower in the building, right? right. The overhead's are the same. Right. So how do we put ourselves in a position to make sure that there's some equity? 
in the places that are a little bit more rural, the characters, the neighborhoods may change or be different, but we all want a high quality education for our kids, no matter where you live. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that cross has come to bear. And I think there's been some great work done to assess the issue, you know, both um, auditor bumps report that talked about the inequities in rural mass and how we need to treat communities different from a dollars and cents perspective, and even for how we implement local laws. I was talking to some of the leaders in the hill towns uh, about the challenges with the new post police accountability law. They support the law. They understand we need to have accountability within with respect to law enforcement. But for these small departments, it's a huge administrative burden mm. to think about implementing it. And we need that interface, you know. And as a mayor, I I represent cities. I worked in Chelsea. I worked in Salem. I worked in Beverly. I am a person who wants our communities working well. So while I'm not from Western Mass, like I'm not a hometown gal, I care about hometowns. Like that's a value system for me that's really important. So whether it's pilot payments, how we think about the inequities uh, relative to other sources of revenue, Chapter 70 among them, how we think about uh, the ability for people to have a high quality of life here and not pay the price for uh, living in a place that might be a little bit more rural, that needs to be front and center. We're not mm. truly a commonwealth unless uh, all of the corners of the Commonwealth are feeling the economic prosperity and the opportunities. And we may have to do more in certain places to make sure that's the case. Now, you mentioned police accountability. And in Pittsfield, there is a very much a hot button issue and um, always, uh, you know, of course, wishing uh, the family uh, the best and uh, in our thoughts and prayers for sure. But a gentleman by the name of Miguel Australia. There you go. Uh, Miguel Australia. Uh, he was shot and killed uh, by our police department. And this is not the first time that this has happened. Um, Of course, this is very much a Pittsfield-centric issue. However, from a state perspective, um, where does the lieutenant governor and governor uh, have an opportunity uh, to help local communities uh, with these kinds of issues of police accountability? You know, I think there's several um, ways that we can be of assistance and, uh, you know, condolences to this family. I'm not familiar with all of the details, but I know it's horrific. And anytime you have a young person of color um, who's tragically, you know, uh, killed in a, in a situation involving a police, the a, the police department. There's there's always questions and flags, and I, I think we really need to be mindful that the family has just been so impacted. So I want to recognize that. I do think that um, the new law that's been passed, the post law, is a good one, and that it's something that can lead to better accountability and better trust. Let's face it. Most of our, uh, you know, police officers, I think, want to get up every day, going to work, and want to do a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that they're, you know, removed from bias or like anybody. Um, but I, I think there's a desire to do well, and this accountability, I think, this accountability legislation can help us ensure that when folks don't do a good job and there are there is egregious conduct, that we're not just passing that by, and that that they're going to be held to a higher standard as mm-hmm. well. You should be. You're given a gun. You're given a badge. It's a tremendous amount of responsibility. But if you don't have trust, with or without post in place, it undercuts your your ability to be effective as a law enforcement agency. And that's got to be key. And I think things that build trust are more transparency. So the state um, right now has a body camera program. Salem's participating in it. We received a grant. We negotiated that with our police officers where we've got the body-worn cameras. That's a great tool, not only for law enforcement, but for the community to understand accountability. What happened? An awful 
you know, tragic situation involving a shooting, that's a time when you actually want to go back and look and see what happens and uh, and better understand what could be done differently and what went wrong. Mm. I think there are other resources around training, um, ensuring that we're doing more police training. We have professionals that oftentimes budgets get cut, you know, training gets relieved um, of a budget in, in those scenarios. And we want to try and do more. I think embedding mental health counselors um, in police departments to really ensure that you're not only infusing them with better skills and ability to deal with a mental health crisis or a behavioral challenge that they come across all too often in responding to 911 calls, but even for officers themselves, there's a lot of trauma in those positions. So works both for from a professional perspective for the for the uh, for the agency, but also for their response, you know, to what they may be seeing in their community. Those things need to be supported. The cost of training is not inexpensive in a police budget. The ability to hire more mental health clinicians and work in concert with other agencies. Law, law enforcement is often partnered with probation and parole and homeless providers and healthcare. Right. You know, that hub model is something that we can perfect and really, I think, take uh, take into account in many communities, especially gateway cities. You know, how do we do that better? Um, I'm a fan of civil service reform as a community that um, wants to do more to make our police department, our firefighters, our city hall employees more diverse. Sometimes civil service can be an impediment to hiring, um, uh, to making sure your hirings reflect your community profile. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a number of steps I think uh, as a as a lieutenant governor, but certainly as state officials that we could play to assist communities and to assist specifically law enforcement in meeting their goals and objectives. Yeah, and I think you know uh, often there is a, a reaction to immediately you know, point fingers and say, well, okay, we're going to go after these officers for accountability. And yes, uh, the officers need to be accountable for sure for their actions. However, if the framework is as such and the protocols are uh, basically making this possible and that's part of what they do uh, according to the protocols, then you really have to look at that. And the tra- and like Correct. you said, the training and what kind of scenario are we creating for these officers, which at that point is appropriate for them to pull the trigger uh, on Miguel or, or anyone in that case. I mean, every um, every city in America was looking at their use of force regulations sure. after George Floyd. If you weren't, you know, shame on you. Right. I think that's the case. Um, but it can't just be a transactional, you know, exercise. You need to embed this in the culture, you know, of your community, of your public safety positions, that this isn't just a, a regulation that's in writing. How do we actually live these values and practice these values within the operation of the department? I think that's the really hard part, to be honest. It's easy to change a regulation. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's another thing to actually ensure that it's embedded in the work. And um, we've got we've got space to do uh, we've got work to do in that space in many regards I think mm. now people vote their pocketbooks uh, often uh, and it's really important to people how they're living week to week and month to month and paychecks are not going as far as they once did inflation is making a massive impact um, particularly at the grocery store and at the gas pump of course that's been very uh, much uh, uh, publicized but um, but when you look at that. Um, tell me what possibly we can do from a governmental standpoint, because some of these issues are beyond the control of even a governor um, or a lieutenant governor uh, in this case. Um, but uh, you know, tell me about the approach to these economic strains on on families in Massachusetts. You know, I really feel like um, although we've been flush in terms of uh, state budgets here, Massachusetts has sort of weathered the COVID struggle, the pandemic, better than a lot of places. 
We're seeing an opportunity for historic resources with the influx of dollars coming from the federal government. Um, I really do feel like it's also very much an uncertain time as we move ahead. Inflation, for sure, supply chain challenges, the uncertainties of the war, rising interest rates. We could be in for some rough seas ahead. And as someone who's you know been a mayor during a recession, I certainly know how to tighten a belt when you need to, and how to make sure that we're you know doing the core functions that really matter within government. From my perspective, I'd love to see our state really get behind some key ways of using those dollars that we have right now right. to support working families. And that comes in a couple of different formats, in my opinion. One is early ed, early childcare. You know, the state of Alabama mm. sends every four-year-old to has a free high-quality pre-K experience. You wouldn't think Alabama. Right? right? Alabama. <laughs> That's not a place we it's usually hold state. up. They don't right? do things like that, right? <laughs> we don't hold up Alabama normally to say, look what they're doing over there. But here's a good example of it. And there are, by the way, there are others that are doing more in this space. That's one thing that we could do, an investment, not only for some of our youngest learners. We know third grade reading levels improve, high school graduation rates improve. There's so much benefit that comes uh, from investing in a high quality pre-K experience for our young people. And we also know it helps working families with so many people, you know, not fully back in work uh, due to COVID struggles and childcare costs. And we know families who are back working. I, as a mom of three myself, who they're older now, so we're not in the early care business, but it was a second mortgage right at that time, paying mm -hmm. for early ed. Yeah. And we know it's so valuable. So that's something that I think our Commonwealth can do better. Many of our school districts right now are seeing declining enrollment because people have had have you know have just not having as many babies, and that frees up some space within our existing school buildings. We've actually expanded pre-K in Salem through a mixed model, so we've got classes both in our schools. And we've got classes that we're working with providers to try and support them to make sure we're not undermining our early care providers who are also, you know, caring for three-year-olds and infants. We need that in our community. So I think that's some place the state could invest that would help working families. The other key struggle I think so many places are concerned about in individuals is housing. You know, we have a huge housing shortage within Massachusetts. Especially out there. I mean, the, the cost of housing in Salem and even, I'm sure, even Lynn and, and Newton. I mean, I mean it's Places it's that used out, to be affordable, yeah. like my community, right, Gateway City, right. uh, for people who pour coffee and pour beer for a living. It's just not the case anymore. Yeah. And I mean, across the Commonwealth, we're seeing people paying way more than 30% of their income towards their housing costs, be it rent or be it, you know, the ability to own a home. There's something that I think our Commonwealth is really, um, really poised to work on and make sure that we're thinking about not only young adults who want to grow up, uh, who want to stay in the communities where they grew up, um, but older adults who want to age in place. I mean, the good news is we're all living longer. That's fantastic. The bad news is we don't have enough housing to support the needs that we have uh, let, for the people who live here already, let alone for anybody who might be moving into any place else. And from my perspective, I think housing is just, it's just a moral right to be able to have a safe, accessible, affordable roof over your head and a key to the social determinants of health. If you don't have a secure housing, you generally are food insecure. You don't get to your medical appointments. It's hard to be a great student if you're you know, not in a secure housing environment. How do we tackle that? Well, there's a lot more we can do to look at leveraging public land, to look at uh, accessory dwelling units by right, working with transit to create transit-oriented development. Many of us are going to outlive our ability to drive. And so thinking about land use models that not only can provide housing, a lot more of it needing to be affordable, but also where they're situated in a way that might be more climate-friendly, that can lead to more resiliency around economic opportunities, jobs, schools. 
And I think there's more the state can do to support that effort, not only in Western Mass, but frankly, throughout the Commonwealth. I think the pressures are here as well. Even though the housing right. prices may not be as high, you still have people struggling to afford what they cost. Yeah. And that's that's that means they can't afford other things that you also need, like food and medicine and right. childcare and, and the like. Maybe a vacation once in a while. Maybe a vacation <laughs> once in a while, right? As far as that goes. And you know, when you look at that picture, the costs of things rising and and yes, it has been even a strain in the Berkshires. I mean, there are some places, of course, that are much more expensive in the Berkshires, you know, in, in South County, uh, Williamstown and so forth. But generally it's been lower. But again, it's all relative because yeah. it's still higher costs than it once was. One element that may relieve pressure over time is a wages. I mean, you know, and wages have remained stagnant for decades uh, compared to inflation and the cost of living. Um, Massachusetts has been relatively progressive on that, moving, you know, uh, incrementally to the $15 minimum wage. Um, but that's a thing too. Uh, wages, you know, and that, that means uh, companies have to make decisions as well. And to be competitive, the wages often uh, are, are um, uh, improved, but uh, but you know Massachusetts, you know people have to get paid a little bit more maybe to live here. <laughs> and I think you're seeing that happening. You know, underway right now. There's such a strong workforce shortage in so many industries, from entry level right. jobs to highly technical and proficient work, that it is uh, pushing wages up, which is also you know creating uh, a reason that things are costing more. What you might be paying for a sandwich or a cup of coffee, you know, is is going to be going up. But it, it's certainly there's still people caught in the middle, right? So many of the folks who work in my community, they're working a heck of a lot more, saving a lot less, and still can't find you know an affordable setting in which to live. And I think we're you know Massachusetts is a you know a high cost state when it comes to things like housing and electricity and childcare, and we might be the, this might be the first time where the next generation isn't going to do better than their parents mm -hmm. and we, that should be a huge wake up call for us yeah. you know we're not doing enough on climate change we're not doing enough on housing we're not investing enough in transportation and it costs a lot to live here um that's going to put us at a competitive disadvantage so th these are issues that uh the next administration is going to have to deal with it's not a you know do we want to tackle it they are here and now that you can work anywhere, frankly, uh, we ought to be worried uh, that all the brain talent. I have a 24-year-old right now. Her job is in Waltham. Her apartment right now is in Midtown Atlanta, which is <laughs> a lot more affordable, a lot better climate. And we're worried that she's going to like it too much, right? We right. we want to, you know, have our have our young adults living close to us, or at least having the option of living close to us. And and I, I think that's something that those of us who uh, are you know don't want more housing in our communities need to really recognize who we're harming when we do that it's you know our own families and of course as a mayor for 16 years uh, you have a relationship with unions uh, you know sometimes i'm sure it's a little bit more strained than others uh, but at the end of the day um, we have Amazon uh, that is, a, a, you know, a wonderful effort uh, for uh, employees to be unionized there. Starbucks is another one. And I'm sure as a mayor, you're kind of like, yeah, you know, dealing with unions uh, that, you know, unions are uh, important in our history. And I think we're seeing a greater recognition of that um, now more in the private sector because the private sector had been pushing against unions and demonizing unions for so long. Um, they've stuck around in the municipal world um, for uh, for some, you know, again, it can be a challenge dealing with unions. Let's yep. just, you're yep. a mayor, you know, I, I get it in those negotiations. But 
here we are and the union uh, pushes is, is now on you know tell me your just thoughts about this and and where and where this may head yeah you know thank the unions for a strong middle class i mean we know that is key i my husband's a bricklayer in local 3 uh, we benefit from the security and benefits that come with being part of a union and as mayor, I've tried to work as hard as I can to be as fair to our employees, right? I don't have a money tree in the back of City Hall, but I value the work that our employees do day in and day out. And I believe we've always been fair and trusting in our relationships and not seeing it as a, you know, a, an us and them battle, but really how do we work together to ensure that we're able to do the work we need to and provide, you know, a high quality of living for the people who do that every single day. Some of the most important work that happens in our community is done by people who are members of our unions, working hard, committed, and dedicated. Um, and I, I think that we should be welcoming the opportunity to see uh, positions that typically have not been unionized embrace that. So many people who feel like they don't have a say around their hours, they don't have, you know, the opportunity to say no to, you know, employment that might be uh, taking advantage of them. Sure. Um, here is where, you know, I think unions really hold their value in thinking about, you know, the sorts of benefits that people expect, whether it's health insurance, an opportunity to do something you love and be paid a fair wage for it. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing the, the rise, frankly, of so many uh, union voices in very different shops and places that normally were thought to be maybe entry level or uh, not places that you stayed long term. Um, and I think that's good. I think that's good for the industry. It'll level the playing field. We won't have some folks doing one thing and others doing something else. And I think it's good for workers who you know, don't have to worry about their health, especially at a time like COVID, mm -hmm. you know, uh, when we really valued essential workers right. who were right. there and showing up. Um, the it's least amazing can... how quickly we, uh, you know, collectively devalued, quote unquote, essential workers as soon as uh, it was convenient. You know, yeah. it was kind of, uh, <laughs> I didn't like that. Well, the least people can do is expect a fair wage and a fair sort of set of working conditions. And I think that's what is at the premise of some of these union movements. And I certainly am grateful for them. And, you know, I'm happy to pay a little bit more for my cup of coffee if it means that uh, the person who's serving it to me is getting a fair wage. And I grew up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and there are many communities like ours uh, where, uh, you know, we were told like, well, GE left town because of the union. You know, it was, always, it was the union. They wanted too much. And, and so we were kind of fed this narrative that, um, you know, that this was what it was. You know, in hindsight, that's not what it was. Um, but again, this is the sort of mentality that gets pushed out there in the sort of uh, corporate mentality of things and that the union is bad and so forth, but God, the union is good. <laughs> and, no. and, and, and I think we've, we may have, from a worker standpoint, hit such a low point. I don't know if we want to say rock bottom, but when you have people at Amazon who are basically unable to take bathroom breaks and they're being tracked uh, electronically throughout the whole day and so forth, and that is actually uh, you know, judgment upon them about their work, um, about their work performance, that's really a bad place to be. So I, maybe we did hit rock bottom. You know, I, I think uh, most people expect that uh, people who are doing the business that they rely on should be paid a fair wage, work in a fair environment, and be treated with respect. That's the basic premise. Yeah. Um, right. And, you know, I hope that's the case with respect to, you know, folks who are operating in our communities that uh, basic respect, fair wage, fair premise. And unfortunately, all too often, that has to happen under a union contract because people aren't willing to do that without it, which is the real sad part, right? <laughs> that we're just not going to be good humans to each other, that we need to have this sort of uh, these protections in place because we can't rely on that oftentimes. So I'm, I'm hopeful that as we think about 
this next transition and phase out of COVID, hopefully it's in the rearview mirror, that we're also mindful of all those folks who stepped up, you know, and who were there when uh, when others, you know, when others didn't have to go to work, right? Many of us didn't really see a big change in our income, didn't really see a big change in our lifestyle. Yeah. If anything, you know, maybe for the maybe for the better, you had some more flexibilities that are mm-hmm. built in. And frankly, I don't know that everyone's ever going to go back to work, you know, five days a week. I think there's a lot of places that are saying, look, this flexibility or what workers want, it's actually, you know, we're more productive or we're equally as productive. So as we think about that, uh, jobs that uh, you're required to be in service, you have to be there. Um, th- those are places that people are may- maybe going to be asking for a little bit more dollars if they have to show up. You're not going to be able to hire folks to do that work unless we think about dignity and how we approach that. Now, you've been mayor for 16 years, but you did have a life uh, before that, I'm, I'm sure. So just tell me a little bit about yourself. I'll be sensitive to the time because I got Jake over here. He's yeah. Gonna, uh, looking, at the, <laughs> looking at the clock. But um, but you know, where are you from uh, originally? And uh, you know, tell me about uh, growing up and, and where you went to school. Yeah. For sure. I'm, uh, you know, so I am currently the mayor of Salem, as you know, but I'm not a native of Salem or frankly, even of Massachusetts. I'm a Navy brat. My dad grew up in Lynn and he's a career Navy man. He met my mom who was from Trinidad when he was in service. I was actually born in Hawaii. We lived on both coasts, you know, uh, yeah, very much so. I said to my parents, why didn't we stay here? Um, But had the, uh, the good fortune of, you know, being one of four girls and uh, as part of a Navy family, moved around quite a bit. I always definitely felt like I was a new kid in school. I came to Salem to go to college and I just fell in love with the city. Um, really felt very much like, okay, this is a hometown. I didn't necessarily have the good fortune to grow up here, but I felt embraced. Uh, it's a really welcoming and inclusive place, amazing history. I fell in love with my husband, Nick, who is a uh, who was also uh, at attending in Salem, attending college. And uh, we've been fortunate to raise our three kids, Delaney, Eilish, and Nicholas, in, uh, in a, just a terrific community where we have sea captain's mansions around the corner from tenement homes, great culture. We're going to be 400 years old as a city in 2026 and really focused on what kind of community we want to be then. Um, and I've been involved in both uh, private practice and in public service. I've worked, uh, as I said, mentioned earlier for the city of Chelsea when they came out of receivership. What a phenomenal experience to be able to partake uh, with others in, in really reinvesting in that community, uh, bringing um, you know engagement to people who live there. You know, a lot of immigrants in Chelsea, a lot of folks who work so hard uh, all the time, and I felt like we really uh, worked in concert to make sure there was accountability to them and uh, the folks who, who lived in that community. A really special time in my life to, to work at forming a whole new form of government. You know, the last five mayors who had been in Chelsea either went to jail or lost their ticket to mm. practice law. They, they just had a lot of institutionalized bad practice. Receivership came in, really helped clean up a lot of the bad practices, but then you have to self-govern. And uh, they formed a whole new style of government, went to a city management forum, and I was their first chief legal counsel and helped codify new ordinances, worked across lines with residents of all different backgrounds. And um, it's a pretty special place in my heart. But I've been mayor in Salem since 2005. And uh, again, feel equally fortunate to to be not only in Salem, but frankly, in Massachusetts. I have family who spread out all over. And as much as we, you know, we like to complain about what's not going right here, and there are things that we need to work on for sure, um, it, there's still no other place I'd rather raise my family than in this Commonwealth. And uh, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to to run for lieutenant governor, and uh, and I'm enjoying it immensely. And Salem, because it's Salem, you know, it's <laughs> it's that community. And and it was funny. I was having a conversation with someone who 
went to camp in the Berkshires. She was from Mexico originally, but when she came to the Berkshires originally, she thought Massachusetts and she's like, oh, this is where, you know, the witch trials were or, or what have you. No, no, no. You, you're in Beckett. That's not Salem. But like, but that was the first thing on people's minds. A lot of people's minds, they think of Salem, its history, um, you know, so it, it's a complicated history, of course, but, uh, but, you know, tell me about your time here and, and how you're able to sort of leverage that from an economic development standpoint. And, uh, and, you know, tell me about Salem a little bit. You know, Salem has an embarrassment of riches when it comes to history. It's just a, a place that has been at the forefront of a lot of different movements. The notorious part of our history is obviously what happened in 1692, the witch trials. And you could drop down in the middle of China and tell somebody from Salem, and there's going to be a witch reference of some sort. Right, right. Um, we try and make sure people who come to Salem realize that you know that was a notorious part of our history and something that really affected uh, you know our judicial system today. Right, we don't accept spectral evidence. Some of the lessons from the Salem witch trials have really helped informed modern day modern day uh, court you know court hearings and the like. But there's so much more to Salem than the witch trials. The Great Age of Sale, the first millionaire in America hailed from Salem. We had tiny clipper ships who went around the world to the Far East and places like Sumatra and brought back just amazing uh, goods that brought prominence and wealth to the Commonwealth. 18-year-old sea captains. Like I look at my 19-year-old son and think, there's no way you would sail around the world without, you know, with a practical navigator, you know? <laughs> uh, so we, uh, fortunately, as I said, have an embarrassment of riches from, uh, you know, literary giants like Nathaniel Hawthorne to world-class architecture. And that has been a hallmark of our economic success, uh, being able to have a place that has uh, a lot of historic buildings preserved that tells our history. It wasn't always like that. We are now the third most visited destination in Massachusetts. And some of that were the investments that we've made collectively. We return almost half of our hotel motel tax funds back to promotion and marketing of our community. Wow. Um, we really invest and want our community to realize uh, what tourism pays for. So you'll see things written on the bottom of checks from that's a paid for with tourism dollars mm -hmm. uh, to really make sure folks understand this isn't just about people coming to visit our community, standing in line or taking part in a walking tour. It's supporting electricians and plumbers and graphic designers and you know a whole array of services beyond the typical sort of hospitality and tourism industry personnel that you might envision in your mind. Um, and for us, it's brought new hotels. It's brought new restaurants. It's We've really experienced a renaissance. And you know, it's not just about October. Uh, we certainly have a lot of people who come to us in October, and now it's turned into September and November. It's spilled over into both months, but we, um, we, you know, are have a strong tourism and visitor base that is in Salem all year long, and that's been a, a key part of our vibrancy. Yeah, I think there's a few really good ideas to pull out of that uh, for the Berkshires. Uh, I would so agree. Yeah. I mean, there's so much opportunity. The cultural and creative economy here is so strong. How do we um, support that more at the state level? I mean, I will tell you, we have made investments in tourism promotion and marketing far beyond what the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has done. And this is a big industry for the Commonwealth. Mm. Um, we, you know, we support life sciences and film industry, and but we need to support tourism and hospitality because it is putting food on people's <laughs> table every single day in very much concentric circles beyond just 
the, the server you might have in a restaurant or the person taking your ticket at an attraction. It's much greater than that. And there are other destinations that are putting money in promotion and marketing. And you know, people have choice. Most of the time, the individuals who are making choices about where families are going to go on vacation are the moms. And um, moms are going to be influenced by promotion and marketing and opportunities. And we have this history here who wouldn't want to come to Massachusetts. And we see people. We just would love to be able to see more of them as part of an economic um, growth engine. Mayor Driscoll, it has been a wonderful pleasure, <laughs> and I know you're headed off uh, to uh, a forum uh, to, today, so we'll let you get going, but it has been a wonderful uh, time with you, and uh, welcome again to the Berkshires, and uh, we hope to, to see you again soon. I will definitely be back. It's beautiful, and as I said, you don't have to be from Western Mass to love and appreciate this place, the opportunities it has, and uh, I, I hope to be in a position to help. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the John Kroll podcast on your platform of choice. Maybe it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever works for you. Also, I would like to hear from you on the people and the stories that you'd like to hear more of. Send me a note through Facebook Messenger, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm easy to find and I'm easy to reach. I look forward to hearing from you. And if you'd like to support the podcast for less than a cup of coffee, and I'm not talking about the cost of a large latte at a fancy coffee shop, no, more like a McDonald's coffee, go into the description of this episode and scroll down to the anchor.fm link. It's right there. Just click it and you can see your options or log on to anchor.fm backslash John hyphen Kroll backslash support. Again, thank you for listening. I'm John Kroll. Talk to you soon.